Welcome back, Tennessee Valley. You are still listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime, and we've got some good stuff. We're answering your voicemails about Elon Musk, talking about Starbucks workers hitting back at the company after severe retaliation, and of course, we are getting to last week in Southern Labor, so let's get started. Um, so we're going to start off with Last Week in Southern Labor. This is a segment that we like to do every week where we talk about what happened in the last week in the labor movement in the South. We pull this from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird? You can read it at whogetsthebird.substack.com. He compiles everything that happens as it pertains to working people in the United States every week. I mean, the amount of things that he's able to compile every week is astounding. And a lot of stuff that's not even like federal, you know, a lot of it he pulls from uh, NLRB filings for elections and things like that. But a lot of stuff he just finds like local news articles about, you know, uh, a, lo- a sick out or something like that. You know, yeah. a sick out of 47 school bu- school bus drivers, that's not reported federally he just finds it. And so the amount of stuff that he's able to find is really amazing. It's really great. I really recommend uh, subscribing to his newsletter, who gets the bird.substack.com, to find out what happens in U.S. labor every week. But for what happens in Southern labor, you can stay tuned. We'll get right to it. In new organizing, four tree trimmers in Asplund are organizing in Paintsville, Kentucky, with IBEW Local 369. 80 workers who make rockets for Aerojet Rocket Dine in Huntsville, Alabama, are organizing with the machinists. I talked to David earlier this week when I was preparing. I was like, hey, you didn't tell me about this. What's going on here? And so he told me a little bit about it. Uh, so that's pretty That's cool. exciting. Yeah, that's exciting. Uh, looking forward to supporting those workers however we can. 28 RNs for Atlantis Healthcare in Mayagas, uh, Puerto Rico are unionizing with 1199 SCIU. 10 sanitation workers for Euro Caribe Packing in Vega Baja, Puerto Rico are organizing with the Teamsters Local 901. 40 more workers for wine distributor Winebow are organizing in Glen Allen, Virginia, but with the quote-unquote liquor and wine sales representatives Local 3, which she puts in quotes because it's a Chicago-based union of dubious integrity, run by a politically influential family that in 1999 was found to be replacing its own members' jobs through a staffing agency and in at least one NLRB case from 2001 was found to have been brought in specifically to supplant the Teamsters, which could be what's happening here, considering that just last month UFCW filed for an election at Winebow in upstate New York, and last year the Teamsters did the same thing in California. So... Company unions are a real thing, and you got to watch out for them, folks. In election wins, after filing for an election at the NLRB, the staff at the Charlotte Observer won voluntary recognition with the Washington Baltimore News Guild. That's a very cool thing. In strike and bargaining updates, 17,000 Texas Kroger workers are back on strike notice with UFCW Local 455 as the company continues to refuse to sign the tentative agreement that they already agreed to back in December and which the union sent to the members for ratification. They just literally won't sign the contract after they agreed to sign it, making it official. So that's crazy. Um, 
this is based on issues outside of the contract, like the union's insistence that the company pay back dues after unilaterally stopping paycheck deductions for over a year. But it is, uh, we're pretty sure, Jonah is pretty sure that uh, that is an illegal thing to do, to hold the contract and attendant raises, etc. hostage because of a non-contractual dispute with the union. Seems like that's illegal. But Kroger is doing it anyway. Um, 49 school bus drivers in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, organized a sick out this week, hoping to win similar gains to their neighbors in St. Tammany Parish, who won $4,100 in extra pay. The months-long MLB-MLBPA lockout continues, but it's really intensified in the past week as, like we said last week, opening day has officially been postponed. The first time a lockout has affected... This is the first time a lockout has affected the regular MLB season, so that's pretty wild. UE Local 150 municipal workers in Charlotte and Greensboro, North Carolina, rallied for fair pay. Transit workers with ATU Local 1593 in Hillsboro, Kentucky, Florida, Hillsboro County, Florida, apologies, have rejected a last, best, and final officer offer from the Hart Transit Authority and are launching a campaign, WTF. Where's the fairness to take their fight to the board and the public? And finally, in political fights, the Kentucky Teachers Retirement System sold off its investment in Russia's Spearbank the day before the Russian invasion, losing $3 million on its initial $15 million investment. That is tough. That is tough. Uh, so next up, there have been some there have been some uh, uh, some new stats that have come out about Alabama recently that Adam has been seeing uh, ha- has seen flying around, and so he compiled all of them in a, uh, uh, for us. So Adam, go ahead and take it away. Talk to us about uh, what's going on in the Yellowhammer State. Sure thing. And uh, before we move on, uh, I know this is not really Southern labor, but worth mentioning that our brothers and sisters in Minneapolis public schools have gone on strike as of Tuesday, March 8th. So by the time this episode airs, we will see if there's a victory. Uh, We hope so. All power to the teachers and support staff up there in Minneapolis. So wanted to talk about Sweet Home Alabama. In the last few months, we've seen some really interesting studies released about the quality of life for working people here in this state. Back in December, the Public Affairs Research Council of Alabama, or PARCA, released a report on state tax collections across the country. Their findings? Alabama had the country's second lowest tax collections per capita in 2019. Only Tennessee collected less state and local tax revenue per resident than Alabama. Alabama has the lowest per capita property tax collections in the country, and our state's income tax is essentially flat, with the top rate of 5% applied to an individual's taxable income over only $3,000. Meanwhile, Alabama has among the highest sales tax rates in the U.S. So, Alabama combines low tax rates with a less valuable base of economic activity, yielding less in taxes per capita and less revenue for state and local government to actually provide services to the public, i.e. the reason they're supposed to exist. Um, 
And the taxes that they do collect here in this state tend to be regressive, meaning they disproportionately affect working class people, while low income and while uh, income and property taxes disproportionately benefit the wealthy. Sales taxes hurt folks a lot more uh, the less money you have. Those grocery taxes that you pay at Walmart and Publix and Kroger, yeah, the wealthy aren't too worried about that. Right. But the rest of us, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, because, I mean, working people spend their whole income, basically, or, or a lot right. of their income surviving. So it's just it, – it's, it's intuitive that sales taxes – hurt working people more because it you know there's a there's a there's a flat kind of expenditure that you have to do to live and and let's put that at i don't know $25,000 or $30,000 a year well if you make $35,000 a year you're spending all of that on right. goods and services and on that is being applied a 8 9% sales tax whereas if somebody makes $300,000 you know they're only spending so much money, and that amount of money is being taxed at the same rate as when you buy a thing, but they've got a lot more income to absorb that tax. And that's why we say that sales tax is regressive, um, and income taxes, are even, even where income taxes are flat, they're not regressive because it's proportional. Right. You know, if you make $30,000 or you make you know $10,000 in a year and you pay a 5% income tax that's going to hit you you know because you make so much less money it's not quite the same but there's at least a proportionality with a flat tax really we should be looking at a progressive tax where the more you make the more society has benefited you uh the more you have to pay back to society to help people who are less fortunate um who, who don't have the same income as you but that's sales taxes Getting so much of our money from sales tax and still taxing groceries, right. mind you, yeah. that's crazy. One of the only states in the country to fully tax groceries. Um, and, of course, whenever Alabama is desperate for revenue, they love to go to uh, user fees and licensing fees and sin taxes, quote unquote, on alcohol and tobacco. Um, you know, we saw a recent gas tax increase uh, with this current legislature. Which obviously right about now is stinging a little bit for most of us. So Alabama has that really uh, deadly combination of mm -hmm. being both inadequate to actually do what we need to do as a state, uh, but also regressive in punishing you the l less money you have. Yeah. Uh, so if you check the show notes, you'll see a write-up from Alabama Political Reporter back a couple months ago. You can find a link to that full report from Parka. And last month in February, there was new data from the National Center for Health Statistics, which was released indicating that of the 50 states and the District of Columbia, Alabama ranks 49 of 51 overall in life expectancy. This data is also from 2019. The national average for life expectancy in the U.S. was 78.8 years, while the Alabama average was 75.2 years. In other words... Living in Alabama costs three and a half years off our average life expectancy compared to the national average. And no surprises here, but the report showed a strong correlation between a state's poverty rate and their life expectancy. And, of course, Alabama has more poverty than the national average. 
Also in February, our friends at Alabama Rise commissioned a survey of likely Alabama voters with the research firm Signal to find out how people felt about Medicaid expansion. The results? Well, roughly seven in ten Alabamians, including nearly two thirds of Republicans, support expanding Medicaid when told about the arguments in favor of expansion. There was similar support in the survey respondents for using American Rescue Plan or ARPA funds towards Medicaid expansion. This comes on the heels of another report from Parca, which shows Medicaid expansion could save the state nearly four hundred million dollars a year, while creating over twenty thousand jobs per year and producing an overall economic impact of one point eight billion per year. The report also found that the annual savings would be higher than the annual cost of the expansion. Worth remembering when legislators and governors blame lack of a financial plan or budget implications as to why they can't expand Medicaid. Right. As a reminder, we've seen eight rural hospitals in Alabama close from 2011 to 2020, and Alabama is one of only 12 states to not yet expand Medicaid. Expanding Medicaid would cover nearly 300,000 Alabamians, which would, of course, be a huge boost to quality of life and would literally save lives. And as a reminder, there are people that are caught in the coverage gap, in the Medicaid gap, where you make too much money to qualify for Medicaid as it exists, uh, but not enough money to get significant subsidies through the ACA uh, or to be able to really afford decent health insurance. So that's about 300,000 of our neighbors who would immediately benefit and be able to go to the doctor to get preventative care, to get life-saving care, and maybe, just maybe, our life expectancy wouldn't be three and a half years shorter than the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the arguments against Medicaid expansion are just nonsense. They, they don't have them, really. They don't I mean, have any. They always point to the budget. But these people, they're supposed to be... They're supposed to be business people, right? And business people should know that you have to spend that that you can spend money to make money, right? right? Like if 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 a company like Amazon, for instance, used the same logic as our legislators in Montgomery do to refuse expanding Medicaid. If Amazon operated by the same logic, then they would not be building a uh, 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 distribution centers across the country because right. it costs money. Right. It costs money to build those distribution centers, even though Amazon gets crazy tax breaks and, and government right. so, yeah, a in lot that of case, it. Hell, but, maybe it doesn't cost a lot of money. But, but it costs some right. money, at right. least. It costs some amount of money, but Sometimes they do it you anyway. Invest. Yeah, they do it anyway. Why do they do it anyway? Because it's going to make them more money than it costs, as is obvious in the case of Medicaid expansion. It will obviously obviously bring in more money for the state of Alabama, create more revenue to have less people dying, okay? <laughs> I mean, on yeah. so many levels, but yeah. but at the fundamental level, it's just that intuitive. We will have fewer people dying if we expand Medicaid, and on that basis alone, we will generate economic activity. Again, in a, in a state that is uh, known to celebrate family values and where every politician brags about their religious faith on TV, I mean, I would think saving lives would be a pretty big priority. And you would think. A- as you mentioned about the opposition to it, uh, if you actually go back and check when this poll 
when the polling data was released, there were some statements from various Alabama officials in the legislature and elsewhere, and they really didn't have much of an answer beyond, um, I believe one quote I saw was, there's not much appetite for this in our mm. caucus. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> I also saw you know more comments along the lines that you mentioned of making sure that there's the long-term viability of the program financially. Again, we now have a plethora of research to show that it would pay for itself. But even if you are concerned about that, you want to be on the conservative side, Alabama Rise has put out a, a plan. They've discussed it here on this show uh, to where you could actually remove the federal income tax deduction, the FIT. You could remove that from Alabama's tax code, remove the grocery sales tax, Right, so you're you're increasing taxes on one end, you're removing taxes on the other end. It would generate enough extra revenue to replace the sales tax on groceries, pay for the upfront initial cost of Medicaid expansion while providing extra funding in case there are overruns in the future. And oh, by the way, you would have extra money left over to invest in people. Um, and the majority of Alabamians would actually see a tax cut. Right. The majority, the only people who would end up paying a little bit more would be the very wealthiest who are paying larger income taxes at the federal level. So naturally, that's why it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Um, so check out CoverAlabama.org for more information about this polling data, about more of the research behind Medicaid expansion, why it should happen, why we need it to happen and how you can help with that. But all this to say that uh, we have an a- inadequate system of taxes. That favors the wealthy while punishing the working class, both in its regressive sales taxes and the lack of government services. We have a quality of life that is so bad in this state that our people live shorter lives. And we have an example of a policy here that could help both the quality of life and the economy that is broadly popular with the people of Alabama. So what is the Alabama legislature doing? Arguing over how to restrict your right to protest seeking to discriminate against transgender kids and their families, and all sorts of ways to participate in the cultural war spectacle while preserving a status quo that is completely broken for working-class people. You know, two of the most significant union battles in the country are happening right here in this state, with the union drive at Bessemer's Amazon Warehouse and the nearly year-long strike by coal miners in Brookwood. Meanwhile, our politicians remain silent about these struggles, are they just straight up tout the company line, even though getting more Alabamians and unions would address all of these major issues detailed in these recent reports? Alabama is at the top of everything bad and at the bottom of everything good. We deserve better, and a better Alabama is possible, but only if we come together, build a diverse movement, and organize our workplaces and communities to fight for the better Alabama that isn't just possible, but necessary. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, So, just a reminder, we have a phone number. And when we are not live, you can leave us a voicemail. The phone number is, again, 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Adam, let's go ahead and play that voicemail that we got last week. Yes, sir. Adam and uh, Jacob, it's Joe Marshall Indicator. Musk invites auto union 
the whole organizing boat at the factory. That's Elon Musk and his Tesla plant out in California. Supposedly employs ten thousand people. Musk's uh, uh, Twitter said Tesla would do nothing to stop them. The UAW wouldn't comment, but spokesman Brian Rothensburg pointed out that Tesla's fighting the U.S. National Labor Relations Board ruling from last year that found the company and Musk engaged in unfair labor practices in 2018. I just thought I'd give you that little bit of information. Maybe I won't look into it in the future. Talk to you later. Bye now. Yep, thanks for calling in, Joe. Uh, I was wanting to talk about that anyway, so now I've got a good excuse to. I appreciate it. Uh, He did also mention in his phone call about Delphi's retirement. Uh, There there is legislation, and and I cut that part out because I, I don't, I don't know as much about it, but but I did want to just just mention it that that he mentioned that there is um there is some there is legislation that's going through the U.S. Senate right now to pay for the retirement of salaried Delphi workers in the United States who lost their pension or or their 401k or something because of a bankruptcy. And he mentioned how um, these were not union workers at Delphi. Uh, The union workers at Delphi were able to retain their pension, actually. Uh, It was the non-union workers at Delphi, and now the taxpayers are having to kind of bail them out. And so that's kind of an interesting, you know, I I want them to get their pensions, but that is an interesting, um, you know, interesting bit there. Um, So Elon Musk did tweet an invitation to the United Auto Workers to organize his plant. He did this while he was throwing a temper tantrum on Twitter about Biden not mentioning Tesla in one of his speeches, which, I mean, frankly, cry more about it. That's how I feel. Uh, In his tweet, he said that Tesla will not interfere, but he will absolutely not sign a binding agreement to that effect. (laughs) He will not sign that. He'll tweet it, but he won't sign on it. But he won't sign on it. Uh, and the insistence that he would not interfere is completely at odds with the actual record at Tesla plants. The NLRB has ruled multiple times in favor of workers alleging that they have been fired by Tesla for their union support, and this after multiple appeals by Tesla. The NLRB has ruled in favor of the workers there. That means that Tesla was found to have illegally fired multiple workers and had to offer them reinstatement and back pay. So, but of course he's not addressing that. And of course, he, you know, it, it, it's just, it, it, it's totally, totally silly. His tweet is completely at odds with his actual record that we can see. We all have computers. We all have eyes. We can see his record and it's totally at odds with what his tweet says. Um, this isn't the first time that he's lied on Twitter when it comes to unions, though. He said that his plants offer better wages and working conditions, too, when compared to union plants, which is, again, in the same way that it's amazing that he would say, I won't interfere in a union campaign when we know that you've done it before. It's absolutely astounding to claim that you have better wages and working conditions than union plants because like this is you can find this information Seriously, right yeah this is not 
difficult information to find. And so in this clip, we're going to play a worker. uh, 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 More Perfect Union did a series of videos about Tesla a few months ago. And in this clip, a worker who was fired by Tesla for his union support and who the NLRB ruled in favor of, he is talking about working at Tesla compared to his old union auto worker job. Adam, let's play that. But when I was at Doomy, doing the same job I was doing there, technically a auto worker building a car on the line, we were making a lot more money, between thirty and thirty-five an hour, and at Tesla we we're getting twenty dollars an hour on second shift. That's with the premium. The, the hours we had to work were just twelve hours every day. No questions asked. Twelve hours, six days a week. I've seen guys that were so afraid of missing that they were throwing up in buckets because they were sick, but they, they didn't want to lose their job. With Tesla, you weren't sure you were going to be there next week, next month. But when the turnover so so fast, you know, you couldn't plan in nothing. They're using them up and spitting them out. <laughs> I mean, th- he was talking about making 10 to $15 an hour more. 10 to $15 an hour more at Numi. Which, what the hell even is that? I mean, that's not even like a big three automaker, right? I mean, as, so of course, obviously, the big three automakers with their UAW contracts are going to be comparable to damn Numi. I mean, I don't even know what that is. But he was making 10 to $15 an hour more at Numi than he was making on premium time at Tesla on the night shift. He was making 30 to $35 an hour at Numi. And twenty dollars an hour at night at Tesla. So it kind of gets worse from there because Numi <laughs> is uh, a joint factory uh, partnership between GM and Toyota. They closed back in 2010, and Tesla more or less took over the physical property and the plant, and repurposed mm. it. So my my guess would be this guy is literally working at the same location. Uh, wow. It's now a new company as under tesla it's doing a little bit different work but yeah i mean he sounds like he was probably driving to literally the same property that wow. he'd done for years and now he's taking a massive pay cut as if low wages long hours and being so scared to miss a shift that you literally come into work puking as if that wasn't bad enough there are other extreme issues with worker safety at tesla let's play that next clip In 2015 alone, the rate of serious injury at Tesla's Fremont factory was 102% above the industry average. And in 2016, it was above the average by 82.5%. Tesla claims its 2019 injury rate dropped below the industry average. But the Center for Investigative Reporting found that Tesla underreported its injuries that year. On top of that, California's inspection agency said it couldn't verify Tesla's claims about safety improvements. Basically, everybody would cut their arms and hands. Sometimes people would bleed off the line and have to run to the bathroom, so it would be a man down, a second person. I would have to stop the line, and once you stop it, if you stop the line there, management come over, would start yelling at you, and they'd be like, why did he cut his hand? What is he doing? Oh, change him out with someone better. Almost like a modern-day industrial sweatshop. I mean, that's insane. I don't see uh, Musk tweeting about that. Yeah. And if that wasn't bad enough, non-white workers have to deal with rampant racism. Adam, let's play that last clip. 
When I was working at Tesla, I experienced on the line being called the N-word. Different people call me the N-word. Not just workers, there are actually managers or supervisors and stuff like that on the line. Where I come from, you know, you just don't do that at work. It's not a place to be called that. When you've got over 100 people who have said they've been called the N-word at the Tesla factory in Fremont, that's pretty overwhelming evidence that there's a problem. That's amazing. Over 100 people at one plant? That's it. That's like... What in the world is going on there? Like, I, when I heard the, when I, so, so I really recommend y'all go back and watch these videos from More Perfect Union. You can find, uh, More Perfect Union on YouTube. Anywhere you find us, you can find them. Um, and they did all these videos a few months, like between five and eight months ago. And when I first saw the, you know, I, the, the video starts and he's like, yeah, I was called the N word. I'm like, hmm. I mean, were you really, I mean, that's pretty crazy in like 2020, 2021, like that's pretty, that's a pretty big claim there. And then they go into talking about, they've got a hundred affidavits from a hundred different workers talking about, I was called the N word. Like what is going on? That's insane. That's crazy. And all this on top of the lower wages, the longer hours, the unsafe working conditions. I mean, this is just, this is insane. Yeah, I I think it starts at the top. I mean, you look at Elon Musk and the way he conducts himself and the way he acts, the way he lies. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, like many billionaires and spoiled rich boys, I think he's got a God complex. Um, you know, I guess he thinks he's going to be Iron Man or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I mean speaking of speaking about Elon personally, the worker in that video said that he emailed Elon personally. Like apparently all the workers there are given Elon's email address. And um, <clears throat> subsequent to that, Elon did not respond to him directly, but he sent out a company wide email telling people, quote, not to be jerks to, quote, less represented groups, unquote. But. He stressed that workers need to be thick-skinned. This was basically a response to workers telling him that they were being called the N-word today. I mean, he didn't even have the the decency to send an email saying, like, hey, we're we're against racism. Uh, We (laughs) condemn that. We will not allow people to act that way at work. We're going to... Really? I mean, he could have just BS in the email, which, I mean, obviously he did anyway, but um, I I think that shows a level of arrogance and bigotry, frankly. This worker never missed a day. He even got awards for his performance at Tesla. He was such a good worker, he got awarded for it by Tesla. And then he was fired, subsequent to raising these complaints, for having a, quote, bad attitude not for being late not for performance issues because he had a bad attitude that's why they say that they fired him um and then if you are fired at tesla they they you are shuttled as an employee at tesla you are shuttled to the plant um from somewhere off plant if you are fired you can't take the shuttle back and so they made him walk after being fired for having a, quote, bad, bad attitude to wherever he needed to go. They they wouldn't let him use the shuttle. I mean, this is just insane. That's despicable. Absolutely. 
And yeah, I can't help but wonder how many people, um, how many minorities working there are dealing with bigotry in the workplace, but now are too scared. Yeah, he said that he brought it up in a, like, in front of other coworkers. I think it was like in a meeting or something, and talked about how, like, I would rather not be called the N-word. And he said that they laughed at him. Wow. Like, what? I mean, this is just, this is bizarre. And see, this this is part of why unionization in the workplace is so connected to Mm -hmm. ending discrimination and to fighting racism and sexism and all forms of bigotry. Because with a union, you have more protection to actually... Uh, stand up for yourself. Right. And you because have the ability to fight collectively to address these kind of issues. If you don't have a union, you can be fired for having a bad attitude. Right. You can be fired for now, having a bad attitude. Legally, they're not supposed to fire you for reporting discrimination. That's a violation of Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. Right. But good luck proving that right. on your own without a union to have your back and almost certainly in front of some reactionary pro-employer judge to a understaffed federal agency that, you know, unless he has it on tape, yeah. unless they put it in writing, it's going to be hard for him to get a positive ruling from the EEOC. It's just, it's really despicable. I mean, and I'm, I'm having flashbacks to some conversations I've had with uh, workers over the years and, you know, that I represented who, mm-hmm. you know, particularly black women who were dealing with bigotry on the job. And yes, when they said something, that was the, the response was that they had a bad attitude right in so many words that's kind of you know they were they were a problem mm-hmm. you know they were difficult to work with well no they just don't like racism yeah imagine that they shouldn't <laughs> i mean and no one should ever have to put up with that in the workplace or, or anywhere really but certainly not at work uh and, and it's just it's despicable and i think that speaks a lot to uh, the kind of culture that's been cultivated in this company. Yeah. So if ever there was a company that needed a union, uh, this is definitely one of them. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's just, yeah. Elon Musk is a liar. He's an exploiter. He's a capitalist. He does not care about his workers. He doesn't care a about white society. South African from a diamond mining yeah. family. So right. um, Emerald mining. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Just yeah, not diamonds. Emeralds. Kind of wonder what kind of blood is... Uh, Fertilize this family tree. Insane. Absolutely insane. Um, In other workplace retaliation against organizing worker news, uh, Starbucks. Starbucks is continuing its retaliation against organizing employees, this time by cutting hours for employees nationwide after firing a pro-union employee in Buffalo for not being available enough, as you will recall. Um, I... (laughs) It's just the, not even bothering to be consistent, not not even trying at this point. Um, and now they have fired a second pro-union employee in Buffalo for being late. This employee was late because their shift was moved without warning to openings, despite the fact that they have a second job working nights at Trader Joe's, giving them almost no time to sleep. The morning that they were fired, they slept in their car in the Starbucks parking lot after finishing their shift at Trader Joe's at midnight, and they went to the Starbucks parking lot and slept before they opened 
and when they ca- but to ensure that they were not late again, right? Like the previous shift or something like that, they were late. They were 20 minutes late. Yeah, yeah they because, had car trouble. Yeah, they had car trouble. It was like 20 to 30 minutes late. I mean, it's not life-ending. Uh, it's not, you know, 20, 30 minutes because you had car trouble. Not it a big deal. It happens. It happens it, to us all, especially if you're uh, relying on wages from Starbucks. Yeah. Uh so the morning that they were fired, they slept in their car in the Starbucks parking lot to ensure that they were not late again. When they walked in, they were fired. Starbucks workers have shot back against this, against cutting the hours nationwide. Which, I mean, look, if you're going to cut hours for workers, you have to accept that you're a part-time job. You're a right. part-time employer, and your employees are going to have second and sometimes third jobs, and you have to accommodate that. Yeah, they want full time availability for part time work. It's it's absurd. and and there's too many of these stupid chain places like this that do this, where they expect full time availability yeah. for part time work. Yeah, and that is that's ridiculous. Starbucks workers have shot back by launching an enormous Twitter blitz with the hashtag WhyWeOrganize, where Starbucks workers have listed a myriad of grievances from especially the biggest one is cutting the hours while they raise prices alongside record profits. Okay, so they've got record profits, then they're raising prices, and now they're trying to cut their labor costs. I mean, it's it's absurd. Having to work immediately following the death of a loved one. When I was going through this hashtag, that happened like multiple times. It's it's like, you know, there, there's that, that thing on TikTok where, uh, you know, this cartoon character says, you know, if I had a nickel for every time this happened, I would have two nickels, which isn't a lot of nickels, but that's a lot of times for that to happen. Like, you know, I mean... There was like half a, do- half a dozen of these stories of people like having to work immediately following the death of, of like a, a mother or a husband or something. I'm like, my God, like, you know, six, six times. That's like, that's right. not a lot of nickels, but that's, that's a lot of, to- of, of workers. Yeah. And we're talking I mean, about lattes here. Yeah. Seriously. This isn't, this isn't, um, you know, brain like surgery. Not, yeah. Right. I mean, good grief. And, and I'm not trying to say that to downplay the, the, you know, the workers and the work that they do, but I, I mean, my point being, there's there's no, no emergency yeah, there's no, no latte die. emergency right, right. that would justify such a callous move yeah um being forced to work while sick inconsistent and unfair discipline and lots more you you should you should look at that hashtag why we organize on twitter uh hundreds hundreds and hundreds of starbucks workers are um are are tweeting with this hashtag about the conditions that they're facing at Starbucks that are forcing them to organize. You know, every time, I think every worker should have a union. Every worker should have a union, even if you've got the best boss in the world, even if you've got great working conditions and, and wages and all this, if you have zero complaints, you should still have a union because that can change tomorrow. But the fact of the matter is that lots, most people who have good wages, who have good working conditions, who have a good relationship with their boss and with their management, they don't unionize. All of these campaigns are brought on by the boss, by and large. There's not, you know, the, the even though I wish that weren't the case, that is the case a lot of the time. It's that these organizing campaigns, the bosses have nobody to blame but themselves. And you can clearly see when you go through this hashtag on Twitter that that is the case for Starbucks. 
Amid all this, workers continue to announce new unions. They are now up to 129 uh, workplaces announced where they will be filing for a union election. And uh, by the time that you hear this, we will probably have three more union Starbucks in Buffalo. The vote count in three more union elections in Buffalo are this week. Uh, remember, we're pre-taping this episode on Tuesday. So, um, so yeah, we will probably have more union Starbucks in the country by the time that you hear this um, amid nationwide retaliation. I mean, this isn't even just happening. The, the the cutting back of hours isn't even just happening at union locations. It's like they're trying to punish everybody. Um, so it, it's, it's really... And I don't know why they would think that that is going to harm the, you know, like, right. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me as a tactic. But that goes to show you that uh, the bosses are not any better than you. They are humans, and sometimes humans do stupid things and cool things, but also stupid things, and they don't think things through. So, yeah. Um, yeah. The last story that we wanted to talk about was oh no 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 there's one more story this is this is just going to be a really quick one because I just got a text from Travis McCoy he is a steward of the National Association of Letter Carriers Branch 462 in Huntsville he texted me while we were uh, taping the show that the um, the Postal Service Reform Act passed the Senate. This is huge news. That is huge, huge, huge news. The Postal Service Reform Act is a very important piece of legislation in protecting the Postal Service from privatization in ensuring that it continues to provide working people with good jobs and in ensuring it provides working people with good service, with on-time delivery, with six-day delivery, With uh, making sure, you know, protecting it from privatization. And, uh, I mean, this is such good news. And, and the reason that it's so important is, I'll just just a, a really short overview. You can go back and, and watch our some, some previous coverage that we've done of this. We've spoken to, um, last year we spoke to Anna Mudd, the legislative director, I believe is her, her title for the National Association of Letter Carriers about this legislation. But the biggest thing that it does is it repeals the health care uh, pre-funding mandate for retirees, which was instituted on a bipartisan basis, which is all the more surprising for this passage, because usually bipartisan means you're being screwed even harder. Um, but in 2006, it was passed on a bipartisan basis to mandate that the Postal Service pre-fund health care for retirees 75 years in advance. 75 years in advance. No other federal agency does that. No other private company does that. But the Postal Service was required to do that in 2006. And why is that? Because Democrats and Republicans want to privatize it. And so there's been enough pushback on that from the workers at the Postal Service and from the people who receive that service that there is finally support in Congress to repeal that, which is really, really good. Because every time, every time that you hear all this nonsense about, oh, the Postal Service, every year it operates on such a big deficit. Every year it goes into debt. Every year it doesn't. You know, for one thing, I don't care if it runs like government services are not to make a profit, that's not why we do these things. We do these things to provide a public good to our citizens. We don't do it. That's why it's that's why it's run by the government 
If we wanted it run for, if we wanted it to make a profit for a few people, it would be a private enterprise, which it's not. It, it, it's public because we want to do a, uh, We want to provide the public with this service. Okay, so even if a it's service good, dating back to literally the founding of the country. Yeah. So even if it did run a deficit every year, that's not reason enough to attack the postal service. Um, but it doesn't. Every time that you hear about the Postal Service running this huge debt deficit, whatever, like 90-something percent of that can be attributed to the health care prefunding mandate. 90-something percent of that. It's bogus, totally unnecessary, does not help the Postal Service perform, does not help the taxpayer, does not help the workers, does not help the, the people who, who receive the service. It's all around bad. They only implemented it to make the Postal Service look bad so that they could use that as an argument to privatize it. So the Postal Service Reform Act has passed the United States House of Representatives. It has now passed the United States Senate, and it goes to President Biden's desk for him to sign, which he has said he supports the bill. He has said he will sign it. And so here again, by the time that you listen to this show, we could see uh, this bill become law. So... Very good news. Uncharacteristically good news right. from D.C. Yeah, I can't remember the last time we had something good coming out of Congress, yeah. so that's And the last time nice. that we talked about this, there, there was a comment in the on the YouTube video talking about that, you know, this person was worried that they have snuck a poison pill in here because he's so... That they're, I don't know. The, it, it's a not a gendered name. I don't know, male or female or non-binary. Um, but they said that... Um, that uh, uh, because because how often we get screwed by bipartisan legislation, it was very difficult for them to uh, accept that it was good. But I do believe that it's good because th- because it has the strong support, the strong support of every single postal worker union. I believe that if there was a poison pill in this bill, I can't I can't sit here and tell you that I've read the whole thing. Um, I have read analysis of it. I've listened to uh, the workers that are affected by it. And because it has such strong support by the National Association of Letter Carriers, by the American Postal Workers Union, by the Rural Carriers, by the um, National Postal Mail Handlers Union, because it has such strong support from those unions... I believe that it is at least, at least, on balance, a good bill. Um, but I, 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 from everything that I'm reading from it, um, it seems like it's unambiguously good. So, so take that for what it is. Um, and now the last, the last thing that we wanted to talk about was that workers at GMG-owned outlets like Jezebel, Gizmodo, and The Root went on strike last week and won big time. Big time. From their press release, they have higher minimum salaries, including $62,000 at the lowest tier in 2022, up from $55,000. So people at the lowest immediately are getting a $7,000 raise. That's pretty cool. With an additional 1000 each year for the life of the contract. A guaranteed 3% annual raise for all unit members. 15 weeks of parental leave, 12 weeks minimum severance, maintaining their current cost-sharing cap for health care, trans-inclusive health care. They defeated management's proposal to give up bargaining rights over changes to health care mid-contract. There is a $45,000 diversity effort budget with audit and transparency. 
There is a goal of 40% of candidates at the hiring manager interview stage from underrepresented backgrounds, which is very important. They retained the right to speak publicly about working conditions, including social media escalation campaigns. They strengthened editorial independence language. Management must now adhere to both GO Media's editorial policy and the Society of Professional Journalists' Code of Ethics, and they were able to obtain guarantees against forced relocation for current remote staff. Wow. That's a lot of good stuff. That is a lot of good stuff. Um, and we've seen a lot of this in, in, in the media world, a lot of really good contracts coming out of the media world. And there's, you know, when the strike was happening, there was some, there was some like, you know, capital D discourse happening happening online about, you know, these people are like privileged or whatever because, you know, which doesn't even make sense. I mean, you're talking about people who are making like $55,000 a year in New York City. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, people have this idea of a... And of course, people like this exist, like, you know, the millionaire New York Times op-ed writer. But by and large, like, people that write for media institutions are just like, normal ass folks right they are just normal working people making the same thing oftentimes less than you or me um and uh, and just because they have a lot of people listen to their opinions doesn't mean that they're rich so be wary of that be wary of that instinct that we have to think that that just because we see somebody on the tv or we see their name in a byline that means they're rich because it doesn't unfortunately i mean not unfortunately it's good that uh, you know People shouldn't be rich from just saying their opinions, but um, yeah, but it is unfortunate that they don't make you know even sixty two thousand dollars in New York City. That's not a lot of money, right? That's not a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, I think the the bottom line is: do they sell their labor for a salary or do they not? And you know, they don't own these platforms, which they should. They, you know, produce content in exchange for a salary, uh, so they're workers. And, you know, the whole arguments over like who's more, you know, which workers are more privileged than others, I think can, you know, that's not to say that there aren't differences. Of course, there are differences between folks who are, you know, writing for Gawker Media versus, uh, you know, or Gizmodo, excuse me, Mm -hmm. Uh, the folks writing for Gizmodo and Jezebel. Yeah, they're probably uh, fairly privileged compared to the folks who are working at Walmart and Amazon. I get that. Uh, but they're, you know, they're gradations all throughout the working class. And at the end of the day, you start getting down into that. And it's very easy to divide the working right. class as opposed to focusing on what unites us. We're selling our labor in exchange for wages because we don't own the company. We don't own the whatever means of production that we're participating in. Right. Yeah, speaking so, speaking of discourse, I saw something on on Reddit uh, about like where do you think where where should we say that the middle class begins? And it's like the middle the middle class is a useless categorization, right? Totally, right. totally useless. It only exists to bifurcate workers to make people think that working people's interests are divergent when we have different salaries. Um, which by and large they are not. The interests of a worker making $30,000 at Amazon is the same as a worker making $70,000 uh you know at on on a job site working for a trade union, right? And the interests are 
They want higher wages. They want more freedom on the job. They want better benefits. They want better protections. They want to, they want good health care. They want to retire with dignity. Um, and they want less alienation, uh, more freedom on the job, and less of those things for the boss. Right. right? And, and less actual... control for the boss, more control for you, more right. independence. All of these things every worker wants, every worker deserves. And so all other, you know, all other distinctions are by and large, by and large, not useful. Yeah. I, I mean, class is not the same as income. That's why we support the Major League Baseball players, even though some of them are legitimately millionaires. Right. Uh, even the minimum salaries are going to be six figures. I'd love to make what they make, uh, but I support them nonetheless because it's a it's a conflict between employer and employee, between right. owners and workers. And unlike when we're talking about in the private sector where we're talking about uh, about a boss making, you know, every dollar that you that, that you make is a dollar that the boss doesn't keep and vice versa. Unlike that dynamic, um, it's not that way with the MLB players, right? Like, I'm not affected whether or not they make... Right. Five hundred thousand in a year, or seven hundred thousand in a year, um, or or eight hundred or a million in a year, right? I'm not affected by that, and so of course they're the ones that are making, uh, they're the ones that are responsible for MLB's success, not the owners. The owners, by and large, hurt the industry, and so of course the people that do the work should get more of the value that they create, and then we can talk about redistribution after that. Yeah, I, I mean, but. You're exactly right, though. Middle class is one of those uh, buzzwords, you know, these phrases that has been used for a very long time now at this point in, in the United States uh, to really obscure the class struggle in this country and obscure the class power relations in this country. Um, you know, I, I think they have tried to convince about 80, 90 percent of the country to all think they're middle class. And somebody's got to be wrong there. Yeah. Um, you know, class ultimately depends on your relationship to the economy, your relationship to the means of production, and how you make a living. If you make your living off wages, you ain't in the same class as the folks who make their living off profits and rents and interest and dividends. That's a whole, you know, there are c competing interests here. You know, read marks. What else can I say? Yeah. Folks, that's going to be it for today's episode of the Valley Labor Report. We appreciate your time. If you would like to help us stay on the air, you can buy our new hat, our Good Things Trucker hat. Uh, you can make a one-time donation or a recurring donation. You can do that all through our site, tvlr.fm. You can navigate to the uh, to our online store and donation page. You can share that on social media. Uh, if you've been watching us on YouTube, be sure that uh, you like the stream, you share the stream, uh, share the podcast with your friends. We are making articles on the website of our clips. You can share those. Um, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, Share your thoughts about the contents of today's episode or ask us a question or share a win that you've had in your workplace. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we will see you next week. Solidarity forever, y'all.